All right, thanks, Mark. Yes, um, this is my uh, negative view on four degrees C, the possibility that we really do lose all our sandcastles. Um, I guess what I actually wanted to talk about this morning is, is really quite a simple and almost trivial observation in one sense uh, that has to do with, uh, as, as we get increasing ranges of uncertainty, the implications that it has for the costs of uh, making proactive adaptation decisions. Uh, and in particular, the idea that for, for, some, for one class of decisions, uh, the effect of having a, an increased uncertainty about those features in itself has a disproportionate effect on, on that range. Um, and uh, that's my sort of, that was going to be my, I'm feeling a bit schizophrenic here after the last couple of days. That was my sort of um, contribution to four degrees is a disaster sort of thing. But, um, but on the other side, I think, it, I hope it's going to just allow me to explore some of the ways in which we might um, improve our decision making. The, the other conclusion I had was that um, it's a very good thing to have a meeting here in Oxford at this time of year where you can actually get out there on the street in front of the pub and play conkers which is great. Seems to be a bit of a pub thing coming in here. I was going to draw some extremely deep parallel between this and dealing with four degrees C world, but instead we just, I just smashed Phil's conquer. That was very good fun. <laughs> anyway, <coughs> there were some very, very uh, befuddled looking tourists watching us doing it. Anyway, um, uh, we've talked a lot about uncertainty and I don't need to really say any of this to this audience and Lenny's just been talking about this again. There are just heaps of sources of uncertainty way, way beyond the um, the uncertainties in our climate modelling right through all sorts of other parts of the system. And in fact, the last uh, couple of decades of, uh, of increasing sophistication in the um, IPCC uh, uh, assessments has actually, during that time, if you look back, at least from the second to the third to the fourth, we've seen an increasing range of prospective futures that we face as we come to understand things better. And there's not much prospect of that, I think, narrowing on the next um, report, given the sorts of understandings, the tipping points and things that are emerging. So, so we've got this sort of profound um, degree of irreducible uncertainty about the longer term future, a, a significant part of which comes from the question of what social decisions we make at Copenhagen and other things like this. But you know, this has always been the case. The future's always been uncertain. And it does really frustrate me when we talk about um, how we've got to get much greater precision and much greater certainty in order for policymakers to make decisions. As Ian said yesterday, Ian Noble, um, policy is always made under, under uncertainty. And, uh, and I mean, politicians are par excellence, the people who, who live and thrive in that. So, so somehow we've lost a bit of a high-level narrative on this, I think. Somehow we've got to the situation where that's the normal situation for most sort of bits of policy. And yes, climate change is a long-term issue and it's got some specific characteristics like that. Uh, but somehow we've, we've moved into this mode where politicians can make decisions under uncertainty for everything except for climate change. And that's a rather unfortunate thing at the moment. So somehow we have to try and move away from that. And, and I mean, I think a part of it, particularly under thinking about adaptation as opposed to um, trying to persuade people that there might be a problem in the future, uh, is, is, is really thinking about different modes of decision making. So not feeling obliged to, um, to deal with certainty and uh, even certainty in an engineering sense, but to being prepared to move much more into uh, thinking about how you manage risk. And there was a nice paper by uh, Siraj Desai and others recently that explored some of this in terms of a, a variety of different modes of, of making decisions, robust decision making, um, risk management as a general principle itself, um, other, other aspects that comes out of the whole sort of resilience side of things. But, but I want to focus a bit on the issue of uh, risk hedging today and how you spread risk in, in space and time. And, um, and I mean, I don't want to overstate the significance. We shouldn't panic too much like this wonderful... Um, we should panic a bit, but perhaps not quite as much as this person in Western Australia. 
Um, but there, because there are a whole stack of other aspects, complications to decision making, which I'm not going to touch on, uh, like the ways in which as, as uh, it, uh, decision making timing over time can actually take advantage of the gradual unfolding of reality so that we can actually adjust things as time goes by. Uh, and that leads with things when you think about um, economic uh, discounting, that, that in fact you can think about having shorter lived infrastructure rather than what we'd normally expect longer lived infrastructure, which might deliberately not be able to cope with certain futures, but, but which is shorter lived so that we can um, think about replacing it. All, all sorts of issues like that uh, over and above the issue that, um, as Stefan Ramsdorf was saying yesterday, our horizons and, and, and the probability of change doesn't actually stop at 2100 anyway, so these are things we have to look much further into the future. Anyway, I'm not going to deal any more than that with those things. I want to focus in on this idea of that long-term uh, future being, being basically irreducibly uncertain, at least from the perspective of trying to make decisions today uh, about things which are, which are still going to matter then. So. Um, I think in this whole, in a way, reacting to Lenny's talk just now, one of the issues in adaptation research is that, um, is that when you look out into these long-term futures, decision-making is actually confused by having millions of options. And there comes a point where you just want a reasonably clear and justified sort of range of alternative possible futures which help you to think about the ways in which you might respond given those different futures. And then as you hone in on a particular decision, you may need a lot more detail. Uh, but I think uh, a lot of our decision-making would do very well on this sort of time frame to come back to a, to a reasonably small number of simple scenarios. And I just want to use these three, uh, which you might say the bottom one is the extre extremely optimistic at the moment <coughs> recovery scenario. There's a sort of middle one which is stabilising somewhere, at maybe three degrees or so, uh, and something which is more like what we've been probably worrying about in the last couple of days, uh, a runaway scenario up the top there. And when you take those, you can start thinking about the sorts of decisions that, with different time latencies, decisions which uh, play out over different time frames, um, and think about which ones of those need to worry about those scenarios as opposed to which ones don't. And it's a sort of pretty simple idea in scenario planning. So the short-term things like annual crops, you can change those every year, so you really don't have to worry about those long terms for that. You can adapt those over time. But as you go down that um, chain of things there, gradually you get into things which which really take 50 to 100 years, or they have that sort of time frame of latency, the uh, implications that flow out, where you're not going to move suburbs in a hurry. So if you set up a new suburb today, it's probably still going to be there in 100 years, if not 200. Uh, and it's a real major effort to go and move it. Now, when you're um, thinking about those longer term decisions, then uh, clearly, clearly they are playing out over the time frame into which these, these different scenarios really might mean you have to think about very different things. And there's quite a raft, as I'll come back later to, there's quite a range of different things you can think of that fall into this sort of category. And, and, and when you're looking at those then, I think you can actually start to analyse the different types of um, responses that you might have to them. And this undoubtedly isn't all of them, but here's three examples. You can have uh, decisions in which essentially there's a precautionary response. So the risk's increasing monotonically, like sea level rise or something like that. Um, and, and in some fashion, you, you'll be looking for a precautionary response to that and you'll need to do some sort of cost-benefit analysis against uh, what sort of level of precaution is appropriate. And for some aspects, not all, but for some aspects of coastal planning, that might be an example of where you'd do that. There are a few decisions, I can't think of very many actually, but there are a few where you actually would do exactly the same against all of those future scenarios. There is actually a really nice example in conservation planning. Uh, which has to do with how you select reserves, uh, which, which at the moment we use these comp comprehensive, adequate and uh, representative principles, the CAR principles, which at the moment are aimed at representing all species in the reserves eventually. Uh, but actually, if you think about it, that's exactly what, what it's doing is to represent all the different environmental conditions 
uh, and functioning. And, and in fact, that's exactly what you want to do under climate change too. There'll be different species in those places, but you still want to have um, a complete representation of the different environments we've got to give the best chance of having somewhere for everything to live. So here, here's, uh, I think, a fairly rare example, but, a, but an example of where when you think of across those different futures, um, there's, a, there's a no regrets action essentially, and you should just get on and, and do it, which, which we sort of slightly do. Um, but there's a third category here, which is decisions in which um, those different futures actually require a different and, and, and sometimes often incompatible action for each of the different scenarios. And that leads to a completely different set of issues to do with risk hedging. And I just want to go through an example of this. So here's an example which, um, which really could relate to large, long-lived forests anywhere, but, um, but, but it's sort of grounded here in, in the central highlands in Victoria, yes, which was the same sort of area that... Um, uh, that David Corolli was talking about fire yesterday, and I'll come back to that in a minute. And, and these forests have got um, a whole variety of large species which, which basically take 100 to 140 or so years to mature, and it's only by that stage that they're providing the sort of environmental infrastructure and services of, of delivering the microclimate that a whole stack of other species depend upon, um, and, and delivering specific things like nesting hollows for these, these critters down here. So. The trees, if we're going to have trees there in 100 to 150 years' time that are actually providing these microclimates and nesting hollows, it's the trees that are getting established today that matter, uh, or ones that have already got established, in order to provide that. So we really do actually have this sort of uh, time frame of uh, latency of these, of these decisions. And so you can start to think what you might do um, from today's conditions here against each of these scenarios. So we've got there a um, extremely simplified schematic of a piece of Victorian Alps uh, with the mountain ash there sitting up uh, in blue up, up most of the sort of higher levels of, the, um, of this particular ridge uh, and various other species that are adapted to slightly warmer conditions um, further down the slope. Now, if you're thinking, um, if you're thinking about what, what needs, to, needs to happen in order that we can confidently have something surviving there in 100 years or so against each of these scenarios, then, then under the sort of recovery scenario, the possibility that the climate actually does start to, to be retrieved over the next couple of hundred years, what you probably do is just try and protect those things, try and nurse them through as best you can. And that would involve uh, you know, putting in fire breaks, keeping weeds out, generally actually disconnecting them from the environment, minimising connectivity. You'd be, you'd be managing for the resilience of the current mm. system. Thinking about a sort of stabilisation at some sort of vaguely three degrees warmer sort of scenario, then you might be thinking rather differently about this. You might be thinking, well, we need to actually get some trees established there today that will actually be able to cope with the sort of environment and continue to cope with that sort of environment uh, in, a, in a century's time. And you might, be, uh, you might even think of something of an engineering uh, solution here of thinking about um, uh, assisted colonisation of some of those trees from lower down the slope that are, that are actually already genetically um, attuned to a higher temperature. Of course, if you are facing a runaway world, uh, that's not a very helpful solution either. You're actually really wanting just to accept that over time uh, things are going to go on changing in directions and degrees that we don't really quite know. Uh, and so there isn't, a, there isn't something you can aim for. All you can aim for really is a sort of resilience concept of, of facilitating self-organising transformation. And you might do that by exactly the reverse to the recovery sort of scenario where you would be actively opening up that <coughs> landscape, connecting it up, trying to encourage things to move up there as much as possible. The point about these, which are a little bit simplistic of course, but the point about these is that, um, is that each of them is incompatible with the other one. If you do any one of those and then one of the other futures eventuates, uh, you've lost that chunk and you have failed to actually succeed in what you're aiming at. Um, so, so this has a number of sort of poignant <laughs> implications for 
for when our, when our um, diversity of uh, possible futures gets wider. Not only, not only does the sort of extreme possibility that we're facing mean that you've got some more extreme proactive adaptation to do potentially, which, may be, which will usually be more costly, but in, but in the case of this sort of decision making, you're actually saying at this stage that we're probably uh, having to spread our risk by doing these different things and we potentially uh, know that in a century's time that two-thirds of those cases are actually not going to have worked. So we've actually abandoned two-thirds of the environment, but we don't know which that two-thirds is today, so we actually have to do all three. Now, it's not quite as bad as that because over time we can learn and adjust um, what we're doing. But nonetheless, that's the, that's the sort of underlying thought in the thesis that I was delivering, which, which um, sort of drives you to thinking about these different forms of, uh, of decision-making. And this really is not an abstract issue at the moment, as, as David introduced for me yesterday kindly. Uh, we have had these big fires down in, in this region, um, which, had, which actually affected an enormous area. David didn't mention this, but it was around uh, over 400,000 hectares, and, and that included some 70 conservation reserves, those, some of those brown patches on the MODIS image there. Um, and, and we can expect those sort of the probability of those things to happen uh, actually to increase quite rapidly, as you can see there. And this is a, this is a serious issue right today for these managers because uh, going out onto some of those sites that were burned in these very hot fires, there seems to be some evidence that the seedbed of the um, existing species there has actually been, uh, in quite significant areas, has actually been destroyed. So there's a question there of uh, what do they do? Do they, do, they, do they encourage, do they just let it be and encourage such seeds as are there to, to re-establish? Do they actively bring in seeds from a slightly warmer um, genotype, from a genotype that could cope with slightly warmer conditions? Uh, or do they think about um, you know, really opening it up and letting, letting weeds and everything else get established, but at least uh, allowing the landscape to um, try and self-adapt? And the truth is um, that they need to do all three uh, in different areas, probably. And that's a pretty hard thing to ask a conservation manager to do, to, uh, to on the one hand, say to one guy, oh, yeah, you just keep doing what you've always done, defend your conservation reserve, and to the guy next door say, oh, just let it go. <laughs> so that's quite a major um, debate in society that we have to have to be able to try and uh, address this sort of problem. And is this sort of problem... Uh, Unique? Well, I mean, I think there's actually quite a lot of examples you can think of in which there are these uh, decisions with long-term latency, uh, but, which have, but which have outcomes which are adaptive under one scenario, but maladaptive under another. Uh, and I won't go through them, but you can think of, you can think of various ones which, which differ in, their, in the degree to which that's true. And, and, and they're not only in the sort of uh, biophysical sort of domain or, uh, or the technological sort of domain, they're in, they're in the social domain too, things like uh, the sort of governance systems that might be appropriate for dealing with these different sorts of um, problems in the future, the, the really broad brush um, complex network architectures that, we're, that we've evolved in our trade and financial systems internationally are another example of ones that you might think uh, about wanting different designs there for different futures. And in fact, um, and in fact, just down the bottom there, thinking a bit more about this as I was putting the slides together here, a little bit late, um, a, a, lot of this comes, a lot of this comes back to some of the sort of deep-held different um, different paradigms for how we manage the world as to whether one's really looking in the uh, resilience literature terminology, looking at specified resilience, trying to just defend what we've got in a sense, um, which is a sort of incremental adaptation approach to life, which is very legitimate in the cases where, where that's feasible, as opposed to more of a sort of engineering approach, and engineers get slated at times, but engineering approaches are very appropriate for some things where you know where you want to go and you've got reasonable confidence of it as opposed to the development of what the resilience literature is now calling general resilience or adaptive capacity, the sort of ability of systems to self-organise and transform themselves into the future. So those, those different things um, apply to quite a lot of decision sorts of making, um, but I don't want to overstate that because there are also 
uh, many, many cases where there are shorter term decisions or ones for which this doesn't apply. So it's just an interesting case of um, a particular class of decisions. So um, to come back to the conclusion then, um, just to restate then my assertion that, that increasing the range of uncertainty as we do as we start to talk about four degrees and beyond with any sort of sense that it's quite likely, which I think was the sense that I was getting yesterday afternoon. Um, cl clearly just extending that range of possibilities means that uh, thoughtful proactive adaptation today has to think about things which are likely to cost a bit more. But there is this class of decisions in which it's not just a little bit more, it's actually a lot more because of the, the effective uncertainty itself in driving us into having to risk hedge across um, a whole variety of different potential futures. Um, and, and these sorts of decisions are not uncommon. They're not, by no means, they're not all of them either, but they're not uncommon. And as you push into more and more extreme uh, climate futures, uh, I think they become more common because the degree to which you need a transformative change rather than an incremental one becomes more and more common. So, the, um, I guess my schizophrenia of the negative side of the message is let's not go there, certainly. Um, but in as much as uh, we have to think about these sorts of things, the positive side of the message perhaps is that in this whole area of adap adaptation decision-making, we really do need to move a lot more to thinking not only about the particular decisions I've talked about here, uh, but about a sort of risk management, robust decision-making sort of approach uh, and, and trying to market that with the supporting science uh, into, into policy-making. And I'll just finish by saying that supporting science is actually rather different when you think about things that way than, than trying to deal with uncertainty in the way we've talked about it quite a bit in the last couple of days. Uh, and so it actually does, I think, cause us to sort of refocus uh, in, in the sort of directions that we're going. I'll just note that particular case study, if anyone's interested, um, has just been published as part of a um, national assessment in Australia of the impacts of biodiversity on, of climate change on biodiversity, if anyone's interested, that's at that website. And this is the future we don't want. Thank you. <laughs>